This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. We begin on a somber note this morning to mark the passing of Senator John McCain. The son and grandson of four-star admirals, McCain spent more than 20 years in the Navy before serving as a congressman and then senator from Arizona for the past three decades. Chip Reed will look back on a remarkable life in public service. I've been an imperfect servant of my country for many years. But I've been her servant first, last, and always. Senator John McCain faced cancer the way he had any adversity in his life, with strength, integrity, and gratitude. I have feelings sometimes of fear of what happens. But as soon as I get that, I say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You've been around a long time, old man. You've had a great life. You've had a great experience. Later on Sunday morning, remembering John McCain. We're taking another look back at the year 1968 this morning. We'll remember the political earthquake that was the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. Chicago-born Scott Simon is our guide. Fifty years ago this week, a war that was raging half a world away triggered a battle on the streets of Chicago. 
Americans saw this thing unfolding on television. Police beating protesters, young protesters with, with nightsticks. And they'd never really seen anything quite like that. Remembering 1968's Democratic Convention ahead on Sunday morning. We'll have those stories and more just ahead. By any standards, John McCain was an American hero. A remembrance now from correspondent Chip Reed. I've been an imperfect servant of my country for many years, but I've been her servant first, last, and always. He was called a maverick. If you want the status quo in Washington, do not support John McCain. He was an American hero. What the Vietnam experience did for me was crystallize the importance of doing what's right. How are you? And as a military man and statesman, by most any standard, Arizona Senator John McCain was a man of courage and ideals. I know who I am and what I want to do. John McCain, the six-term senator from Arizona. But last summer, McCain began another fight. The war hero is fighting the biggest battle of his life. A personal struggle he took public when he voted against the Republican health care bill. I will not vote for this bill as it is today. It was the latest example of John McCain voting his conscience, even if it meant bucking his own party. I was raised in the concept and belief that duty, honor, country is the lodestar for the behavior that we have to exhibit every single day. Born in 1936, John Sidney McCain III was the son and grandson of four-star Navy admirals, and the maverick in him came out early. I was very rebellious. I was a person who didn't conform to the rules and regulations of uh, either high school or the Naval Academy. Nevertheless, he volunteered for combat duty during the Vietnam War. In October 1967, as a Navy pilot flying his 23rd bombing mission over North Vietnam, his plane was shot down. It was uh, hit by either missile or any aircraft fire. I'm not sure which. And the plane continued straight down. And I ejected and broke my leg and both arms. Severely injured, McCain was captured and held at the so-called Hanoi Hilton, the infamous prison known for its brutality. After about a year, he was offered early release because of his family connections, but McCain refused to leave his fellow POWs behind. McCain languished in captivity for a total of five and a half years. He withstood frequent beatings and torture, leaving his arms with permanent damage. In many ways, it was the most uplifting experience of my life because I was privileged to serve in the company of heroes. In 1982, after he retired from the military, he took his fighting spirit to Washington as a United States congressman. He went on to be elected six times to the Senate, where he stood out for his straight talk. 
especially on subjects like campaign finance. If the special interests continue to play a greater and greater role in the formulation of legislation, then we will see a breakdown of democracy as we know it. And I'm not exaggerating. But in the late 1980s, McCain himself, along with four other senators, was accused of exerting improper influence on regulators who were investigating allegations of savings and loan fraud against financier Charles Keating. McCain was never disciplined. It is because I owe America more than she has ever owed me that I am a candidate for President of the United States. He ran for president twice, first in 2000 and then in 2008 when he won the Republican nomination to run against Democratic Senator Barack Obama. During that historic campaign, which at times was racially charged, McCain's sense of right and wrong was on display. He's an Arab. He is not. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. No, ma He's a. He's a, he's a decent family man, citizen, that I just happen to have disagreements with. Governor Sarah Palin of the great state of Alaska. Though he led the ticket, McCain's campaign may be best remembered for his controversial choice of running mate, Alaska Governor Sarah Palin. The fact is that she has done an incredible job, and I'm so proud of the work that she's doing. McCain was defeated, with Obama winning twice as many Electoral College votes. I had the honor of calling Senator Barack Obama to congratulate him, please, to congratulate him on being elected the next president of the country that we both love. He returned to the Senate, where he led the Armed Services Committee, but in 2015, he would find himself in the crosshairs of then-Republican presidential Trump. candidate Frank, Donald Frank, Trump. He's he hit me. Hero. He's not a war hero. He's a war hero. He's a war hero because he was captured. I like people that weren't captured, okay? I hate to tell you. A year later, McCain withdrew his endorsement of Trump after audio emerged of the candidate bragging about groping Hello, women. The strain between the two Republicans continued after President Trump took office, when Senator McCain was blunt with his criticism. I think we've seen this movie before. I think it's reaching the point where it's of Watergate size and scale and a couple of other scandals that you and I have seen. It's a centipede that the shoe continues to drop. Last summer, when the senator's health issues became public, the outpouring of respect and admiration overflowed the aisles. Oh, I got very choked up. And, uh, and then, of course, you know, all of them coming over and giving me a hug. It, it was deeply moving. I had never seen anything like that. To the end, John McCain faced cancer as he had any adversity with strength, integrity, and gratitude. I have feelings sometimes of fear of what happens, but as soon as I get that, I say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You've been around a long time, old man. You've had a great life. You've had a great experience. I want, I want uh, uh, when I leave, that the ceremony is at the Naval Academy, and we just have a couple of people that stand up and say, this guy, he served his country.
Touchstone Pictures invites you to an unforgettable adventure. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac, August 26th, 1940, 78 years ago today. Rushmore. The day Hollywood found its voice. It's about being the life of the party. For on that day, Don LaFontaine, the king of coming attractions, was born in Duluth, Minnesota. Though you might not recognize the name or the face, surely you remember this. Terminator 2, Judgment Day. This time he's back for good. Or this. A family comedy without the family. Home alone. How about this? He's still the same old dad, Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> In his 33-year career, Don LaFontaine lent his voice to more than 5,000 movie trailers. Blackjack, the new film, Lethal Weapon 4. And 350,000 commercials. Yes, you heard right. William Baldwin, Jamie Lee Curtis, Virus. His ominous, melodramatic baritone became known in the business as the VOG, or Voice of God. And as he told CBS News in 1998, it was a gift from above. I was 13 years old, and my mother was doing dishes one day, and I said, Mom, I'll help you with the dishes. After a stint in the Army, LaFontaine was working for a New York radio station when he and a colleague formed a company to produce movie trailers. In 1965, a mix-up prevented an announcer from making a session, and LaFontaine stepped up to the mic and found his calling. Joe Daylight, the border raider who won the Casa Grande and all that went with it. A colorful writer who often penned his own spots, he will perhaps best be known for his catchphrase, in a world. In a world without you. In a world filled. In a world where the sun burns gold. The line became so popular, LaFontaine spoofed himself in a 2005 Geico commercial. In a world where both of our cars were totally underwater. Don LaFontaine died in 2008 at the age of 68. But as long as there are movies and coming attractions, he'll be playing at a theater near you. Before there were podcasts, there was television. Remember? See what's new under the sun every Sunday morning. The year is 1968. The month is August. And Scott Simon of NPR is taking us back in time. Worlds collided at the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago. Young and old. War and peace. Law and order. You can't take that week in isolation. 68, one of the most dramatic and traumatic years in the nation's history. Let's on to Chicago and let's win there. Thank you. They kind of all rolled to Chicago, and you could feel it coming. Bill Daley, who would become President Obama's chief of staff, was a college student and spent the convention at the side of his father, Chicago Mayor Richard J. Daley. We knew that there was going to be an enormous challenge on the streets 
And my father believed that he was the defender of the city. No more the peace groups are demanding permission to march on Convention Hall the night the Democrats nominate their candidate for president. With thousands of protesters expected, 12,000 Chicago police officers were deployed along with the National Guard. A Democratic convention is about to begin in a police state. There just doesn't seem to be any other way to say it. The country was being torn apart by the Vietnam War. There were Not long before joining CBS News, Bob Schieffer was a young reporter in 1968, attending his first national convention. It was supposed to be a place where the Democrats were going to get their business all together, but everybody knew it was going to be difficult. I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. President Johnson was forced out by the success of Senator Eugene McCarthy in New Hampshire. Robert Kennedy was assassinated the night he won the California primary. Vice President Hubert Humphrey didn't enter any primaries, but was favored to win the nomination. Hubert Humphrey was the establishment, and he represented the big bosses and the traditional Democratic Party. The politicians, the big city mayors, they were certainly not satisfied with Gene McCarthy. His sole campaign was, I'll end the war in Vietnam. The city said in a year of assassinations and riots, it couldn't grant permits to protesters to march on the convention or sleep in city parks. We knew the convention was coming to town, and we knew that uh, there was probably going to be some problems. We were getting pelted. Bill Giaconetti was a rookie policeman right, in 1968, right posted to the protests in Grant Park. I had come home from Korea. I was stationed on the DMZ, and, and uh, the next trip, all my buddies went to uh, Vietnam. Wednesday night, August 28th, the confrontation that had been building all week, probably all year, burst open on the street between Grant Park and the convention headquarters hotel. The first deputy said, clear the streets. After the final warning, he said, if you don't move out of the street, my officers are going to clear the street. And that's, that's what we had to do on that night. They were just swinging their clubs like just a bunch of idiots. The problem wasn't the regular people. The problem was the agitators, and there were a lot of them. My partner next to me, he caught a house brick in the chest. They had to take him to the hospital. The notion that anybody came to the party with the idea of a big fight is wrong. Marilyn Katz was the 23-year-old head of security for Students for a Democratic Society. I understand that they felt that, one, they should keep control of their city and that the Democratic Party and the mayor were saying, we're counting on you to keep things in order. There was no excuse for beating us. Did you ever see anyone throw anything at police yes. officers? Yes, yeah. I did. And if I had had something, I would have thrown it back too because we had done nothing. The violence in Grant Park was indeed seen all over the world and at the convention. I just received some film of the police and the demonstrators. Where anti-war delegates erupted. And with George McGovern as president of the United States, we wouldn't have to have Gestapo's tactics in the streets of Chicago. Despite the uproar, Humphrey won the Democratic nomination by more than a thousand votes. But once all these riots had broken out and all this trouble had happened in Chicago, the nomination 
wasn't worth the paper it was written on. When it goes that far, it's time to make a change. Richard Nixon ran on a law and order platform and won the presidency in a close election. And at the end of 1968, a special commission called what happened that night on the streets of Chicago a police riot. Bill Giaconetti, who would be decorated in 1979 for taking two bullets to free 13 hostages, says... Well, I, it wasn't the police riot. And Marilyn Katz, now a well-connected public relations executive, agrees. I think that puts too much blame on the individual cops. I think that, that Daly made a mistake. Mm -hmm. He really wanted to maintain control of his city and demonstrate it. Richard J. Daley would be reelected twice after 1968, but his actions at the Democratic Convention he brought home that year would stain his image in history and the party and city he loved. Did your father ever have second thoughts? about his actions or anything he should have done differently. We would probably regret getting the convention, but he never <laughs> really said that. He was defensive yeah. around the police action because he thought that they were provoked, challenged. Yeah, he wished it didn't happen. In the heat of emotion and riot, some policemen may have overacted. But he was not somebody to go back and anguish over decisions made. In those times with the energy, Things were black and white. There was good, there was bad. Cops are bad. You know, demonstrators are good. I remember. Yeah, and, but life's more gray. It is the tallest 20 inches in sports. The distance between a diving board and the surface of the water can feel like half a body length, especially when it's half your body length. Which is why all summer long, four-year-old Dylan Stick has been cheating the system gradually lowering himself into the water like a fragile egg. He had no interest in it. His mom, <laughs> ever, Marla. You don't want to pressure him. Right, yeah. right. We were just saying, hey, you want to give it a shot? You want to give it a try? And He was no way. Right. He wasn't interested. <laughs> Enter 95-year-old Daniel Biss. He drafted me. Daniel was in the Air Force during World War II in Korea. Radio operator. He knows a thing or two about fear and bravery. So when he saw this neighborhood kid at a family pool party in Canton, Ohio, and heard everyone trying to coax him off the board, he just wouldn't go. <laughs> he knew exactly what Dylan needed. Just needed some convincing, I guess. I guess he did. I was going to try anyway. Are you videoing this? So Daniel borrowed a swimsuit and with cane in hand, stepped up to set the example. This is a miracle, one kid yelled, as if Lazarus himself had risen up to the springboard. And it did feel that way. The great-grandfather hadn't been on a diving board in 50 years. And yet there he stood, ready and willing to teach a lesson in courage, which almost turned into a lesson in first aid. Everyone kind of like held their breath and got real nervous, like, oh, was this a bad idea? Well, I was, I was up there that far, I figured I may as well go through with it. <laughs> And so, at the age of 95, he dove for Dylan. Not the prettiest dive I've ever no, seen. No, no, no. I could have done better. <laughs> Actually, he really couldn't have done better. Because shortly after Daniel took his last jump off a diving board, Dylan took his first. Yeah! It was really neat that that 
inspired him to do it. It was a neat moment. <laughs> this all happened last month, and today Dylan jumps no problem. Hopefully, his courage will now inspire you with whatever leap you need to make. Ken Chenault is one of America's most respected CEOs, the former boss of no less a corporate titan than American Express. This morning, CBS News special correspondent James Brown talks with Chenault about his road to the corner office. It's a big day at American Express headquarters in New York. After 37 years, this is CEO Ken Chenault's last day. Thank you. And thousands of employees have shown up to say goodbye. Ken has been an incredibly empathetic and amazing leader. Chenault is a rock star to the green card faithful. And their preternaturally calm leader stands up for hours. He's a celebrity. Patiently taking selfies. He admits that all of this can be a bit overwhelming. To hear people say, you changed my life, you are an inspiration, how much better does it get in life? And what a life it has been. At the time of his retirement in February, Ken Chenault was one of just four African-Americans running a Fortune 500 company. Someone told me, I can't conceive of an African-American ever running a major division at American Express. And my response was, then you haven't met many African-Americans. He's a class act, very simply. He's the kind of uh, person that you'd love to have as trustee of your will or marry your daughter or be your next door neighbor or whatever it might be. Warren Buffett has been Chanel's friend for over 20 years. Buffett is also the largest shareholder in American Express. You called him the gold standard of CEO leadership. Pretty high praise, what did you mean by that? Well, I meant that you couldn't do better than look at not only what Ken has accomplished, but the way he's done it. Born in 1951, Ken Chenault grew up in a mostly African-American neighborhood on Long Island, New York. The third of four children, his father was a dentist and his mother a dental hygienist. How would you describe your upbringing, your childhood? I had two parents who really cared about us. I'll never forget the headmaster of the school telling me this story when I was about to graduate from high school, saying when your mother was investigating our school, she said, I want an environment where if one of my children has the opportunity, they can be president of the United States. He attended private school and then went on to Bowdoin College in Maine. Very turbulent times when we were in college. Yes. What kind of influence did what America was going through at that time have on you? It had a profound influence on me. I received opportunities as a result of Brown v. Board of Education to be there and to witness and to be involved in the civil rights movement was very important. But at the same time, I wanted to be open to people from all over the world. His worldview expanded when he went on to Harvard Law School. And while there, he met his future wife, Catherine. One of the things that attracted me to Ken was his intelligence, the way he treats other people, and his integrity. Those are the qualities my mother had told me to look for. They married in 1977. Kathy became a lawyer as well. I had no idea when I was in law school that I was going to pursue a career in business. 
What I did know is that I wanted to be a leader. In 1981, Chenault was recruited by American Express and he took on a big challenge, running a division that was in trouble. They were losing money. And I really was able to put together a team and figure out how to motivate people to do things that they didn't think were possible. And we went from $100 million in sales and losing money to over $700 million in sales. And it was one of the most formative experiences of my career. That began a meteoric rise at Amex, propelling Chenault to president and COO in 1997, and then into the corner office in 2001. What was the first thing that you did when you got the news? I really reflected on what it meant. What it meant for me, for the company, for African Americans. I really saw it as a privilege. Just months later, his leadership was tested on 9-11. American Express lost 11 employees and suffered major damage to its headquarters. It was a horrific tragedy for the world and for America. And I assembled all of our employees in the area to Madison Square Garden. Our company is sound. Our hearts are even stronger. And our minds will get clearer. We will overcome. American Express rebuilt. Wall Street watched Washington with shock and fear. Amex was tested again in the Great Recession of 2008. It was a scary time for anybody running a big financial institution. He kept his head while others were losing theirs, and I never worried about Ken taking us through a, a very stormy sea. Chenault was CEO of American Express for 17 years. Now at 67, he is taking his leadership to Silicon Valley as a venture capitalist and board member of Facebook and Airbnb. Has technology and digital done enough to change the broader society? I think there's more to do there. For the Chenaults and sons Kenneth and Kevin, it was an emotional farewell. American Express employees from around the world gathered to show their appreciation. Every country we went to, people were crying. It, 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 it was emotional. I was crying, you know. What did that kind of reaction from the employees say to you about your husband? No, that's all right. I'm loving this. Go ahead, Kathy. What did it say? That's all. Her husband held it together for the most part, but on that last day, even he got a bit emotional. Thank you for giving me the opportunity of my life. I love you. Coming soon, Mobituaries, a podcast on matters of death and life from Mo Rocca. I'm Jane Pauley. Thank you for listening. And please join us again next Sunday morning. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert, and I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert, and I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. 
Hi, Stephen. And how long have you been the, the producer of this? We've been doing this for two years now. Okay. And and what is it like to attempt to uh, get feedback from me about the podcast? Be honest about how quickly I respond to emails. You actually respond to emails surprisingly fast. Really? I, I think you might be the only person I respond to. <laughs> <laughs> respond to quickly. Oh well, that's good. Yeah, I expected I expected you to lay into me. Well, this was over the strike period. Oh, I had time. Yeah, See, that, that does that doesn't count. <laughs> sure, I responded to everything because responding to you putting reruns up on the podcast was like a form of employment. Yeah, I felt like I had something to get up for every yeah. day. So thank you for that. Listen to the Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>